Hello and welcome to Nice Talks. I'm Matthew Brown, part of Nice's media relations team. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Nice's self-harm guideline. Joining me is Professor Nav Kapoor, Professor of Psychiatry and Population Health at the University of Manchester. He is a topic expert on the NICE Self-Harm Guideline Committee. Nav, thanks for joining me. Can you explain what is self-harm? Sometimes there's a bit of confusion when people talk about self-harm. We're using a really kind of wide definition here. So it's self-injury or self-poisoning, irrespective of the apparent purpose. So in hospital settings where I work, you know, it's mostly people who have, you know, perhaps taken overdoses. In community settings, it tends to be self-cutting or other types of self-injury. Um, and we have this wide definition, irrespective of apparent motivation. That's the, that's the bit we include. J- just so we kind of capture everyone and no one's excluded. Because otherwise, if you're, if you're focusing, trying to, you know, separate out people into people who have, you know, tried to end their lives versus people who are, you know, non-suicidal, that's a, that's a word, um, a phrase that people often use. It, it, it's often very difficult and people end up getting excluded from care. So this, this wide definition. The other thing is that sometimes when we talk about self-harm, we think it might just be young people. You know, it's young people who self-harm. That's often uh, the, the images, uh, the, the kind of story in the media. But, but it can occur across the age span. So, you know, everywhere from childhood to older adults. And is there a particular reason why people self-harm? I mean, one of the really important things to remember is, is self-harm's a behaviour. It's not a diagnosis. And it's a complex behaviour. So there's lots of different things that might cause self-harm. Quite often in a clinical situation, there's a, if you like, a, a precipitant or an antecedent, something that's happened, like a, a relationship problem or, you know, school or work pressures or, you know, particularly pertinent given what's happening out there, uh, financial or economic worries. So there's often an antecedent, but the kind of background tends to be complex. So things like there are genetic elements to self-harm and suicidal behaviour, so genes that people are born with early life experience so we know that people with you know very difficult early life experience perhaps you know even abuse in their childhoods are at greater risk of self-harm later on other things other environmental things finances economy clinical factors so you know if someone has a, a physical illness or if someone has a psychiatric or psychological illness they're at greater risk Things like drugs and alcohol can also increase risk and and also kind of psychological factors. So the way people think or the way people respond to stress, all of these things can contribute to self-harm. So really complex. I think that's the main message. We know from the NICE self-harm guideline that self-harm and suicide are linked. We've just marked World Suicide Prevention Day in September. And one of the striking statistics in the guideline is that in a year after hospital presentation with self-harm, people are 30 to 50 times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. What does the NICE guideline recommend? That's a really important point. We'll just, just pause there because, again, you know, one of the myths around self-harm is you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a serious behaviour. It was just someone trying to draw attention to a particular problem. And I think that's really important to say that's, that's incorrect. It's always a sign of distress. And yes, you're absolutely right that it is one of the most important risks one of the most important pre-events prior to suicide so in the year after someone presents to an emergency department with self-harm they're at much higher risk than the general population 
up to half, maybe more, of people who die by suicide actually have a history of self-harm. So intervening with self-harm is, is really important if you want to prevent suicide. It's also you know, really important in its own right. So providing high-quality care will make an impact on suicide rates. You mentioned high-quality care there. What are the support and treatment options available to people who self-harm? So because self-harm is complex and it's got lots of underlying causes, lots of different underlying antecedents, then approaches to how you help people have to be kind of similarly complex. So the, the important thing is to match it to people's needs. So for some people, they might have you know, mental health care needs. They might have an underlying depression or something else. For others, it might be a kind of social care need with mentioned you know financial stresses and other things contributing to self-harm and suicidal behavior one of the, the really important principles of care is to match the treatment to people's needs so you treat any underlying conditions but also i think one of the crucial things in the guideline is the availability of talking treatments so we know that talking treatments after someone has hurt themselves can reduce the risk of someone repeating self-harm and probably reduce the risk of eventual um, suicide as well. So talking treatments are really important. In the guideline, we talk about cognitive behavioural or cognitive behavioural informed treatments. So they're, they're a particular type of talking treatments, but talking treatments specifically tailored for people who self-harm can be really helpful. Obviously, we both recognise there is considerable demand for NHS mental health services at this present time. Are there any recommendations in the self-harm guideline for other areas where people who self-harm present? Absolutely. So, so one of the big shifts in the current version of the guidelines from the previous version is, is that we've tried to think about where else people who have harmed themselves might present and how they might be helped. So, you know, one of the messages is, well, self-harm is kind of everyone's business, really. So uh, we've got some guidance in there for education for teachers, for social care, for pharmacy, for paramedics. There's, there's a wide variety of different recommendations for people who, you know, aren't mental health specialists, general practice, people working in primary care. Those, those are all really important. And one really important thing we're saying is, you know, no one is expecting people who are non-specialists in those settings to be able to do full assessments and to provide talking treatments. That's absolutely not the case. But because self-harm presents in those settings... People should know, you know, what to do, who to refer to for help. And I, th- I think that that's a really important principle that you're right. Not everyone who self-harm will present to health or social care. They'll present in these other settings. And those are opportunities to pick people up, to plug people into care, um, to help people. My special thanks goes to Professor Nav Kapoor for joining me on this episode. And thank you for listening. If you found it interesting and informative, please recommend it to a friend or a colleague. You'll find us on social media too. Follow at NiceComs. Join us again next month for another episode. Thank you and goodbye.